the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Stress adds up in our bodies. We wake up with it, we carry it with us, and we pile on more throughout the day. It's often a challenge to handle the daily hassles of life. According to today's guest, Dr. Alyssa Eppel, we don't have to live this way. Dr. Eppel offers a prescription to living with more joy and ease. Dr. Eppel is an internationally renowned health psychologist who focuses on how to live well and thrive with stress. She's a professor at UCSF and a member of the National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Eppel has received awards from Stanford University, the Society of Behavioral Medicine, and the American Psychological Association. She is a co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Telomere Effect. Her new book is The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. Welcome, Dr. Eppel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan. So, Doctor, as I said in the introduction, we wake up stressed, we're stressed throughout the day, and then as the day goes on, we seem to get more and more stressed. What do you believe is happening in our society today? Why are we so stressed out? It's a good question. A lot of people look toward the historical current events, the chaos, the political instability and divisions, the multiple crises, the multiple pandemics. But the data show that we've been increasing steadily in our stress levels for several decades now. So we are having more stressful events and feeling more stressed out by them. It may be in part the level of screen use that's overtaxing our memory, our attention, and the social media, social world, which also makes people feel isolated and left out, and especially our, our young adults and our, our youth. The, what you described is actually interesting, which is how we might wake up feeling some stress, and then have it escalate across the day. That is what we worried about most during the pandemic for our frontline workers, our healthcare workers, essential workers, because that can really exhaust us. Having a day with no breaks does lead to a buildup of anxiety in our body, and we, of course, can become emotionally exhausted as well. And so the importance of managing daily stress well, of creating a schedule that is more spacious, where we can take more breaks, and using those breaks for things other than catching up on email and, and scrolling social media. These are basic, but they're really important, and they help us not deplete our energy. You just mentioned a, a laundry list of, of reasons as to why we're so stressed out, and I want to talk about all of those, but I want to hone in on one for a moment. You mentioned the pandemic. What do you think the pandemic has done to our mental health? I mean, I, I see people that are walking around in a fog today. I mean, they're, they're scared, they're isolated, and, and we're coming out of it. So what do you think this has done to the way we live our lives? That's a great question. We are still peri-pandemic, and people feel that. It's not quite over. Things still are different and limited in some ways. The future is still uncertain. It always is uncertain, but let's just say elevated levels of stress from the uncertain future. And people are tired. They're exhausted. So where, you know, where is mental health been? Of course, it peaked in the early pandemic 
we became somewhat experts at living with COVID, and it went <clears throat> it went down a bit. But the thing about mental health and stress is that it can be cumulative. There's a long arm, or let's say a long shadow, to chronic stress that can put us in states of depression and anxiety that become disorders and that we deal with on and off. So I think the response is normal, that people are having emotional responses to the environment that are not abnormal, but the level of stress, it's just unnecessary and is exhausting us. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm normalizing it for all the people who do feel depression and anxiety, but I'm also saying there are things we can do. We really don't have to live with this level of a dark cloud over us that shapes our day. Do you think we've had some type of a collective PTSD? Are we all living with some type of a trauma from it? To varying extents. And when we look at population data, we really see the heavy burden of the social stressors, the traumas in young people, in people of color, and in women. And that's what the stress data show as well. The level of stress in young women is in the 60% or more feeling overwhelmed by stress. And in women over 65, it's more like under 10%. So we really do, there is some resilience that comes with aging. There is a larger perspective that's protective. So doctor, what happens to us physically when we're dealing with all of these constant stressors that we've been talking about? What goes on in the body and and how can it be detrimental to our health? Well, the stress response that we mount to cope with a situation right in front of us is super helpful and critical. We mount uh, uh, cortisol and adrenaline go up and our sympathetic nervous system becomes dominant over our parasympathetic nervous system. All of that creates fast action, energy, and allows us to rise up in a way to cope with whatever we need to. And then we recover, and that's the beauty of the stress response. It doesn't harm us. What harms us is if this goes on and on, we're mounting a stress response too frequently over years and years. That is wearing we call allostatic load. It, it, it creates wear and tear on the body and on the regulatory systems. And then our baseline of blood pressure and certain stress hormones and sympathetic activity, those can become elevated. And then we walk around with a lot of risk for chronic diseases. You wrote a book, The Telomere Effect. What are telomeres and, and how do they play into what we're discussing? There are many ways you can look inside of the cell and look at aging. And I was lucky to work with Elizabeth Blackburn and Julin, who have a world-class lab to measure telomere length in different cells and tissues. And Liz actually won a Nobel Prize for discovering this mechanism of aging. So we've been studying this for almost two decades. And there are other ways that the cell ages, and then little mechanisms that either accelerate aging or slow aging that we've also studied that are now um, many other people are studying these, such as inflammation, epigenetic clocks, and a little bit of research on mitochondrial health. And the story is that chronic stress is associated with accelerated aging in most of these systems. And the good news is that our daily emotions seem to matter a lot. When we can boost up positive emotions, it appears to be related to less aging. It appears protective from chronic stress. And there are lots of ways that we can boost positive emotions. So it's yet another way of managing stress without, you know, we can think of it as stress reduction, but it's really a mental shift toward seeing aspects of life and experiencing gratitude and awe in everyday experiences in everyday interactions with people and especially with nature. So there's a lot of research behind each of those things that I said that that points us to a mind shift towards let's focus on emotional well-being. It's really important. It's directly related to longevity. So when we make these shifts, doctor, we can be protective in eliminating or lessening any future damage. Will it also reverse some of the damage that we've done? 
to some extent, many aspects of aging are reversible. And in the brain, there's neuroplasticity. So when we create new habits, when we do things repetitively, we are changing our responses, our patterns of response. We can do that with these stress reduction techniques. We can take on a practice and make it a habit. And that's, in a way, imprinting, you know, new um, healthy ways of being from our brain to our body. And in terms of telomeres, they are, they do grow. There's an enzyme telomerase that builds them back and makes them longer. And we're not very good at measuring telomeres very accurately, but there are some studies that suggest that exercise, omega-3, and um, certain types of mind-body practices may be boosting telomerase or lengthening telomeres. And I would think one of the first things we should do is stop telling ourselves we're so stressed out. I mean, I know so many people who walk around saying, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed. I mean, that would really be a great starting point, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really out there. It's socially acceptable, maybe even a badge of honor. It's contagious. It gets really tiring. And I agree with you. I think that's a good place to start is, is just examining why right now do you need to be carrying around this stress? I mean, there are times that we need it and we're in the thick of things, but usually we're not. Usually we are able to take a break and actually feel ease and tell our bodies, this is a time to relax. It's okay to relax right now. If we don't take those breaks, it is very easy to go on and on with our kind of default stress mindset. Mm-hmm. Is it a good idea to view stress as some type of a, an exciting challenge rather than a threat, like something that could be good for us? Yes, there's a, I have a whole chapter on different ways, either mindset or practices to bolster our mental stress response. And it, it does matter what we are saying to ourselves and what we believe. So when we can think of stress as a positive resource that our, that our body has, that our body's mounting a response to help us cope, that is, I will say, the first step in really moving toward a positive stress mindset. There are different statements we can adopt and say to ourselves, and it really depends on the person what statement they're going to use as their own stress shield. I'm interested to hear more about what you see when you said, you know, people are walking around saying, I'm so stressed. And what do you, how do you respond to that if someone that to you. Well, you, you know, my work is all about trying to change the way you look at things, the way you, you view things, the stories you tell yourself. So I'm always trying to tell someone to shift how they're viewing something. And so rather than, you, you know, one of the big things that I've learned is instead of saying, I have to do this, I like to tell myself, I get to do this. You know, it's something that it's a privilege to do. And, and it's a little shift that works for me so that everything in life doesn't seem like a chore. I love it. I think that's beautiful. I get to do this. It's an opportunity. Right. It's a privilege. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, because I just think, you know, the more we tell ourselves we're stressed, we're creating stress that isn't even there. That's right. It's very easy to, to do that, to see stress in a safe situation, to look at the risk, the overinflate risk. So. So change your attitude, change your life is such a great title. And there's so much truth to that about how much our beliefs really do manifest. Right. And I'm wondering what other beliefs. Well, and I started. You just said is viewing. Yeah. Well, I I was going to say, I started this work back in 2009 after going through a lot of personal turmoil. And really, at the time, I didn't even know what I meant by change your attitude, change your life. All I knew was if I was going to make it and and survive all that I was experiencing, I had to get my head in the game. And then as I Mm -hmm. moved forward, I learned more and more about the power of our thoughts and the way we view our experiences in life. And so I've been a student of this work. And that's why I always start there when trying to navigate anything in life. It's, it's always with the way I see it and the way I view it. And because I am a, a believer that if you think you can or can't, you're right. And that's the story that we write for ourselves. Mm, I love that. I couldn't agree more. Do you think, doctor, that a lot of the stress we feel, it comes from a fear of the uncertainty of what the next day may bring or that we're so fearful of something happening 
that we create our own stress. I think there is a lot of truth to that. When we have an uncertain future, which we always do, when we have an exaggerated uncertain future, like right now, it does leave us with a a conundrum, a challenge in our body because we want certainty. We want predictability. We love that. And it allows us to feel ease. But when we don't have that, then we have to either consciously really become comfortable and okay with uncertainty or we might just feel vigilant and tense and not even identify why but that kind of lingering uncertainty of the future in small and big ways is always there and the question is how can we live well with that how can we breathe into uncertainty and embrace it it's not easy but i i do suggest several practices for it in the book stretching our uncertainty tolerance muscle so that we can be okay even though we can't control the future. So some of it is attitude. <laughs> Change your attitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really just realizing how little we control and being open and curious to life as it emerges. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like you were saying, what, you know, let's view what happens as an opportunity. There's more possibility given that we don't know exactly what's going to happen. There's a lot of potential for joy, growth, change that has positive aspects if we, if we really see it and we really manifest that. Doctor, can you give us a brief overview of your seven-day program? Sure. There are a set of strategies that are focused on, I'll call top-down, so mindset, change your mind, change your body. Change your mind toward positive embracement of stress and stress better. Change your mind toward feeling safety and being able to release stress and let go and then having more deep rest states in your body. There's a section on metabolizing stress, how the different ways that we can use short bursts of stress to actually burn up excess stress in our body or unconscious stress and release it. And then there's um, their practices that help us focus on everyday joy and beauty. And that's one of the most important ways for us to feel happiness, is to see what's really there already in our day, rather than waiting for some external circumstances to happen. I'll be happy when I get to do this, when I make this, when, you know, this relationship works out, et cetera. There's so many ways that we trick ourselves to think that circumstances will unleash happiness in our lives. Did you try any of the exercises? Because I would love to hear um, how you... Well, I was going to ask you if you could share one of your exercises Mm -hmm. or practices with our listeners now to help them get started making the shift. Sure. Is there any particular one? You can choose whichever one is your favorite. Okay. Well, one of my favorite chapters was on nature because I didn't realize there was so much research behind understanding the green mind effect. And so one of the ways that we can change our stress response is changing our environment and getting rid of, you know, busy office or urban landscapes, um, all the stimuli and the triggers that keep us vigilant in stressful environments and get into or create a corner in a house get into environments that have safety signals that make us feel safe. And the practice that I outline is a nature walk, but not simply just going to a park and walking, but it's really a mindful sensory immersion experience because opening up the senses is a gateway to reducing stress, shifting our mind state to from one of self-focus, rumination, or threat mode to a more experiential mindset when we are feeling safe and at ease. So if we can spend time focusing on each sense, smelling the air, listening for birds or other sounds, hugging a tree or feeling leaves, the sensory aspects of being in nature, looking carefully at a plant or a flower that we might have just walked by every other day. These are ways that we can have 
the green mind effect can shift ourselves from red or yellow mind to this more experiential self. We feel more connected to something larger than ourselves. The book is Distress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. Doctor, if our listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, where can they go? Well, I just put up a website so that people could find all of our publications, all our research, and the two books, The Telomere Effect and The Stress Prescription. I also have events on that website, um, talks and retreats. So the website is alyssaepple.com. It's E-L-I-S-S-A-E-P-E-L.com. And Doctor, in our final moments, in about 30 seconds or less, what is the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? We don't have to live this way. Like um, you explained at the beginning, we really can control our well-being much more than we do with a bit of effort, with a bit of prioritizing it. Make 2023 a year where you prioritize your mental health. It's too important to just let it be like a ping pong ball or a pinball pushed around by events that happen. We can control how we respond to events and we can let go of the events that we can't control and have more states of joy, ease, and connection. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your great questions. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. Hello, doctor. Hi, business owner. Hey there, freelancer. Timing in life is everything. Famed psychologist Dr. Dennis Waitley explains that timing is seen as something over which the individual has a degree of control. That is certainly true in our lives and in our businesses. Business success is certainly affected by timing. Healthcare is totally about timing. Most folks agree that the key to a great treatment is usually early detection and intervention. This is exceedingly true in regard to accounts receivable issues in your business or your practice. This is Vito Mazza, your cash flow specialist with Kinem.com. For financial help, a business needs to have a systematic approach that will enhance cash flow and profitability by speeding up slow-paying insurance companies and vendors and collecting from clients and patients less expensively and more effectively. The real secret is for you, the owner, to adopt an early diplomatic intervention system. This will help you collect the money owed without damaging patient or customer relationships and help medical practices get their insurance claims paid a good bit faster. I'm licensed, bonded, insured, HIPAA compliant, and I can help. Please visit Kinnam.com forward slash Vito dash Mazza or call 800-850-5110.
We all want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Doreen Steenland, an ICF certified coach who uses neuroscience and coaching to harness the power of our brains. As a transformational neuro coach, Doreen changes brains one thought at a time. Doreen is the founder of Living Full Life Coaching. She is here today to discuss communicating to influence. Welcome, Doreen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Doreen, there are many reasons to communicate, each with a desired outcome. What does it mean to communicate to influence? Yeah, that's a great question. So immediately when we start talking, our brain is either drawing people to them or pushing them away, which is why our words and our presence matter so much. Um, trust and distrust are located in different areas of the brain. So as speakers and leaders who want to influence, we want to activate the trust network in the brain so that we can influence and impact people that we're communicating with and create buy-in and collaboration. What mistakes do you think we make the most often when we communicate? Yeah, so most of the time it's, it's when we don't realize that um, there's there's an important conversation coming up. And it, we often don't notice this because we don't practice dealing with these very important conversations that are emotionally charged very often. And, and let's face it, we're seeing these emotionally charged conversations in our society on rerun over and over again. And if we could just pause and think through these conversations and really learn to come with a mutual respect and, and charge and have a plan in place before we have these conversations, we can change everything in what's happening in our world right now. These conversations, they don't happen, so we don't really have enough practice to build in the habit and pattern, um, and they're usually most emotionally charged. So, the goal for us is to have a plan in place before we have these conversations so that when we get to this point, we can recognize that it's happening and intervene in that, that pattern. In addition to having a plan, what are some other strategies we can implement to be more effective? Yeah, so um, immediately um, we need to know that your brain will not engage and, and feel trust unless it feels safe. If the brain is feeling threatened um, in any way, shape, or form, it's going to pull back, go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. It's, it's going into threat mode. It's going into protective mode. So what, one of the things, several of the things, what that we can focus on are our safety, first of all, making it a place where there's mutual respect and, and where we are trying to share ideas and come with curiosity and a desire to learn and understand what the other person is saying. Instead of letting our emotions take us on this train where we want to prove ourselves right, because let's face it, our brains are always looking to prove ourselves right. So if we can recognize that inside of us, our brains are working to prove ourselves right. And we can pause in that moment and say, I, I'm feeling threatened right now. I need to calm myself. And I'm wondering if the other person is feeling threatened. I'm wondering if I really understand what they're trying to say. What if I asked a question to get more information, right? Having that kind of attitude as we're approaching a, a tense conversation opens things up and, and creates this safety because everybody wants to feel seen, heard, and understood. So if we, if we can provide that, that safe, trusting place where mutual, mutually respected, respectful conversations could take place, that's kind of the first step in, in having these conversations. Doreen, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Doreen and her work, or if you would like to work with Doreen, you can visit her website, livingfullifecoaching.com, or as always to hear more from Doreen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Doreen. We'll be right back. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book, 
you've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Life is messy, there's no doubt about it. But according to today's guest, Cy Wakeman, being happy is not about cleaning up the mess around you. It's about learning how to move through obstacles more skillfully. She's here today to talk about how to change the level of contentment you feel in your life by learning to disconnect happiness from external forces. Sai is an international leadership speaker, consultant, and founder of Reality-Based Leadership. Her new book is Life's Messy, Live Happy. Things don't have to be perfect for you to be content. Welcome, Sai. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited about our conversation. So, Sai, things don't have to be perfect. That is such great advice for so many of us. We strive for perfection, and when things don't go as planned, we can really unravel. Do you believe that perfection is a myth? Absolutely a myth. And it's just unattainable. And so we're like chronically disappointing ourselves in ourselves and in others when we set that as a goal. And worse, we defer happiness. And unless we reflect on this, you know, what we do a lot is I'll be happy when this is a better situation. I'll be happy when I retire or when my job is different. Or We spend so much of our time and energy trying to get the world in a state of perfection. And ah, then we can be happy that unfortunately we might find we've deferred our happiness so long that we've lost such valuable time. And the reality is you could be happy right now. If you just realize that life is going to be always, you know, messy and that the goal isn't perfection, but a goal can be knowing how to move through the mess, as you said, skillfully. Yeah, you know, I am guilty of being this person for many years. I mean, for most of my life, I wanted everything to be so neat and tidy the way it was supposed to be. And it really took a major upheaval in my life for me to understand that things don't work out as they're quote unquote supposed to be, and that you need to accept all of these changes in order to learn from them and move forward. And we need to, um, you know, not be chronically surprised when they come. I think our expectations, if we can remove from our life living with expectations and instead live with great expectancy, that we just expect life will be full of wonderful surprises and we'll end up where we need to end up and we'll be good. But it's the expectations that get us externally focused, trying to keep all the plates spinning, trying to keep all the people happy, performing, and really abandoning ourselves so that we're not abandoned by others. And when you're doing all this performing, you start to wonder, do people even like me for who I am? Because they don't even really know me. They just know you know, this perfect little view I've presented to the world, and we start feeling really lonely because it's hard to um, connect with people when you aren't being honest about the many messy areas in your life. That's really where we connect with human beings. I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the years from doing this work is that happiness is an inside job because, you know, I've met people who have stories that they would have every reason in the world to be miserable and to be unhappy. And yet they find joy despite their circumstances. And then you meet other people who have every reason to be happy and yet they're miserable. And so uh, I agree with, you know, what you're saying. It is an inside job. We have to find it from within ourselves. Absolutely true. So many of us outsource our well-being. We wake up in the morning and we go, how do I feel? Let me check the news. Oh, I feel unhappy. Instead of let me check myself. I'm happy. I believe the universe is kind. Now let me check the news. What can I do to help? It's very, very different. And it's proof that if it was just external circumstances, then people who had 
better lives would be happier and people who didn't would be less happy. And it just does not play play out that way. Um, and it's also not about like toxic positivity or spiritual bypassing, just I'm going to ignore the mess and, and pretend to be happy. It is truly finding some radical acceptance for some days are like that and having um, skills that you can um, maintain kind of a spirit of contentment um, in the mess. Life happens in the mess. I used to, even when I did my inner work, I used to go, okay, I'm going to not be in a relationship for a long time and I'm going to do all my inner work and I'm going to get myself great and I'm going to go out and have a relationship and we won't have any issues. And that just never worked out that way. I couldn't go out in life and pass the test no matter how hard I prepared, because part of going out in the mess is willing to be vulnerable and just saying, you know, when two or more people are brought together, we will have some messiness to hold space for and to be curious about. And so instead of trying to get your life perfect, what if you cultivated curiosity and walked with curiosity? That's more helpful in the mess than, you know, um, trying to prepare so that when the mess happens, you'll be perfect. Like it's really shaping yourself so that you're more capable of being in the mess but unaffected by the mess. It all comes down to the way you choose to see it. I mean, I I totally believe that this is a choice. And I love when you say there are two ways to go through each day, joy or misery. And at each experience, we need to make the choice. We have the power to make that choice. We really do. And I want to be really clear that um, the choice is about how long we suffer. Pain is inevitable. We will have losses. We will have injury. We will have insult. We will have disappointment. Um, But pain is momentary. The suffering part is more about the story we create and how long we hold on to the pain. And that's where the choice, um, the choice is, you know, it's, it's um, something can happen in your day. Let's say someone walks by me on the street and said something that I think most people would find um, kind of mean. That took one minute out of my day, and it was, it was you know, painful um, as I received it. Now, I have a choice of what I'm going to do with the next four hours of my day. Am I going to think about it consistently and question myself, and am I going to talk about it and tell other people about it? Like, that person maybe took a minute for me, but I'm the one that gave them the next four hours. And then I can even limit my pain when someone says something that I could find insulting, I can say my choice is they can call me that, but I can decide whether that was meant for me. I can decide whether I received that. And once you get to that place, you start to really see where so much of the suffering you think you're enduring, you were self-creating. Right. And it goes back to, like you said before, having expectations for the way things are supposed to be. You know, that person wasn't supposed to say something mean or this wasn't supposed to happen. And we get caught up in that. Absolutely. A lot of us don't experience reality as it really is. We experience reality as the gap from how we wanted it to be. And we mourn the gap when, you know, the reality just is never as harsh as we Imagine it. And there are techniques that you can learn to move through life more skillfully. And one of the techniques I teach a lot is just stop believing everything you think. Question your own story. Question your own thinking. Edit, edit your story. You know, um, let's say I'm standing in line at the DMV to renew my license. And when I finally get to the counter, the gentleman says we're closing for the day here's the time you could come back and we could help you. All that's really happened is he's let me know when I can return to get my license renewed. That's it. My ego makes it into this person's trying to ruin my entire life and they are out to get me. And this is absolutely ridiculous and then underserved throughout the government system. Well, now all of a sudden I'm downtrodden and live in a repressive system or I could just come back tomorrow when he told me to get my license renewed. That suffering part is optional. There's a little pain in having to come back. Not my favorite. But the suffering we add to that is mind-boggling at times when we take what happens and we add a story to it. And I find this with people at work all the time. I work a lot in healthcare. And I'll go onto a unit 
and I'll say, hey, how, how are you doing? They're like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's horrible. And, and like, no, really, I see you're busy and you're staffed for that level of busyness. So you're busy. And it's like, no, it's crazy. And I'm like, well, how did it go from busy to crazy? And people inevitably will say, like, I added that part. And I'm like, well, is it helpful? Be very careful to what you add to your reality every single day, because that's the part that chips away at your natural state of happiness. The book is Life's Messy, Live Happy. Things don't have to be perfect for you to be content. If you'd like to get more information about Sai and her work, you can visit realitybasedleadership.com. Sai, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often, that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, and that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. How do I give things up is a question I hear almost daily. Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg, CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized, an award-winning professional organizing company serving clients who live with chronic disorganization. Many people living with CD have very deep emotions and find it difficult to let go of what I call heartstrings items. I say, let's work with your emotions rather than fight them. First of all, maybe you don't have to part with those items at all. Who says you have to give up everything that's important to you? If you love something and it makes you feel good, keep it. However, if you're drowning in possessions and can't live that way anymore, you can do something about it. One way, decide to decide. Tell yourself you're going to make a decision, set criteria for deciding, then trust yourself that you're doing the right thing. Another way is to have a ritual. Hold it, thank it for its service, bless it, bury it, burn it, kiss it, or take it to its new home, knowing that it will make someone else very happy. A third way is to keep a small part of a larger whole, like just a few favorites or a representative sample of items from a big collection and then pass the rest on. Whatever action you take, doing something to honor yourself and your feelings can help to remove the emotional tie to a material possession. I'm Gail Gruenberg with Let's Get Organized. Call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website at lgorganized.com. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Joining us for this week's To Your Health is Dina Salisi, author of the book, Listening to Flowers, Positive Affirmations to Invoke the Healing Energy of the 38 Bach Flowers. Welcome, Dina. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, June. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Dina, for our listeners that may not be familiar with it, what is flower therapy? Flower therapy is a system, a self-help system, of using a subtle energy from a select group of flowers to transform challenging emotional states. And the system was developed nearly 100 years ago in England by a gentleman called Dr. Edward Bach. And he was a physician, and he had a very lucrative practice in London. But he sort of, um, you know, went went off the rails of what the, the mainstream medical practitioners of his time were doing in that he began to recognize 
that people's emotional challenges were defining how they were able to heal. And so he kind of went into nature and um, put together this system using flowers. And we still use it today. Um, I like to, when I'm describing it to people who aren't familiar with it, I like to point out that it's more closely related to homeopathy, say, than it is to herbal extracts or aromatherapy. So you actually take the tinctures internally and um, they transform challenging emotions over a period of time. And uh, it's a deep healing practice, similar to homeopathy, as I said, but it works on the subtle, sort of the spiritual level of the body rather than the physiological level. What are Bach flowers and why are they special? So they are a select group of 38 flowers. Actually, 37 of them are flowers, and one of them is made from what Dr. Bach called rock water, which is water that occurs, um, you know, naturally in a stream or from a waterfall. So it's the essence of the rock and the water combined. So, um, you know, he chose this group of 38 remedies because he went out and he tried them on himself and then he tried them with patients. His whole system developed in about six years. So since his passing, which was in the mid-1930s, there's, now there's over 300 essence remedy practitioners worldwide. And uh, so there's hundreds of remedies made from all different flowers. And I'm a firm believer that everything holds life force energy and that every flower has a particular, let's say, a catalyst um, that we can connect with, right? So I would say what's special about Dr. Bach's remedies is that he was um, he was a very organized, you know, well-read human being. He was intuitive, and he put his 38 remedies into seven categories of emotional challenge. So whenever I'm introducing people to flower remedies, flower therapy, I teach it by his system of seven emotional categories, because this way I feel like it's the easiest for us right away to connect with the flowers. For instance, one of the categories, the first one that he lines out is fear. And there's five flowers that are connected to different elements of fear. So right away, that's relatable to to pretty much everybody, right? We've all experienced fear. And we can kind of dig into the flowers that way. Like that's a great catalyst, a way to start flower therapy is to go by the categories and even begin with fear because it's something we can all relate to. So I would say what's special about his flowers are that they feel very foundational for me. I do use other flower remedies from other practitioners, but I'm sure that whenever I work with a client or a student, I make sure that they're really grounded in the box system first, you know, because he's the grandfather of the system. But also I believe that his remedies are very foundational, whereas I feel like a lot of the newer flower remedies relate to more, um, you know, states of trauma or more modern emotional situations that we're dealing with. So are the remedies then based on emotions as opposed to symptoms? Absolutely. The first rule in flower therapy is to treat the person, not the disease. So that's kind of like where he, Dr. Bach, made the pivot as a doctor, as a physician. He kind of went more into the the philosophical healing, like what emotions were people feeling rather than prescribing medications based on their illness. So yes, absolutely. The first rule is to sort of look within, ground into what it is we're actually experiencing. And then from there, you can catalyze you know, a positive mindset, positive energy within, so that then you can transform physical illness. But we don't do it based on the symptoms. How did you end up bringing this into your life? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I think I've always been a self-help hobbyist from as far back as I can remember from when I was a child. I was just fascinated with the idea that we could use these um, metaphysical methods as they are um, to, you know, to heal ourselves, to, to shift. And I experienced trauma at a very young age. Um, and I would say it was, was, I was about 19 years old. I was in a bookstore in Greenwich Village, and I found Dr. Bach's book, Heal Thyself. And, um, you know, I was just totally enchanted with the idea that we could use the energy of flowers to not only heal and transform trauma, but also to 
discover more about ourselves. So I, I used it, um, you know, I did self-study for decades before I brought it into my professional practice. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, it was meant always to be a self-help method. So that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever I have clients, um, I turn them into students because I feel like it's really important to kind of gain deeper awareness about what it is that we're experiencing emotionally. And that's the first thing I teach people is how to look within, how to connect with their emotions and to recognize what emotions are, say, acute, you know, a mood that you're in, or chronic, maybe something that's at the deeper level. And then we look toward the energy of the flowers to transform what it is we're feeling. What else would you like our listeners to know about flower therapy? Well, I would like them to know that it's easy to use. And what I mean by that is that we, we've all come into this world with an inherent sense of our own capacity for self-healing. And when I say that, I don't mean that like you should never go to a doctor or you shouldn't consult with other practitioners, but more that we should always trust our inner awareness first. So um, I, I want people to know that getting to know yourself better is the catalyst for deeper healing on, on any level, whether we're dealing with something so traumatic as childhood sexual abuse or so scary as um, cancer, you know, I work with a lot of cancer patients, always beginning with the knowing that you have the capacity to transform your mindset and thereby transform your physical health. But that's, that's our gift that we've all come into the world with. Dina, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Joan. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.